Welcome to Own It from Women Lead Change. I'm Tiffany O'Donnell, the CEO of Women Lead Change. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Gail Zemek-Lemon, who talks about U.S. national security in terms that are personal, relevant, and digestible. She spent the past 15 years chronicling the post-9-11 conflicts and writing about Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq in terms that make faraway conflicts feel close to home. She combines a rare mix of business acumen using her Harvard MBA and her current experience in leadership at an emerging technology company focused on AI for defense with a gift of storytelling and helps make these global issues approachable. Gail, thank you so much for joining us on the Own It podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I want to hear, um, before we get to your incredible book, um, I want to hear more about you. Um, your journey, because it's an interesting one. And, and for those listeners who might not know you yet, can you, yet, can you just give us a little insight into Gail? Look, I've had the privilege of telling stories that move people about communities of women underestimated from the outside who rise to the moment in service to a cause greater than themselves. And I think certainly I was influenced in that by the community I grew up in, right? I, I grew up sort of the wrong side of the uh, Washington, D.C. suburbs in a community of single moms, uh, none of whom had a college degree, all of whom worked at least two jobs, some three. And they really taught us how to go to work. And they taught us how to not feel sorry for ourselves when they face setbacks. And they taught us uh, to see things that other people didn't and to see the world uh, in all its complexity in a way that reflected the people around us mm-hmm. and didn't leave them out. Well, and I think what what's also interesting to me now that you are, are grown up and have this, you know, context of the world, how do you think how you were raised in that community of women has affected who you are today? I think it really made me question narratives. And uh, one of the first TED Talks I gave was really about how you can't count what you don't see and you don't invest in things that are invisible. My mother always said, on a scale of major world tragedies, yours is not a three. So, you know, it really taught us to see people who look like us uh, from backgrounds that look like us, people who might not have been counted, might not have been paid attention to, and to see them as important. And that motivates me. That motivates me to use community of storytelling to help people see themselves and feel like maybe they could do a little bit more after they finish reading than they thought they could going in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, you know, like now I, I live in a fancy world. I've had the privilege of going to Harvard Business School and becoming a Fulbright Scholar and all of these things. Uh, but if you want to talk about the people I would still call in a crisis, it's the people I grew up with, right? I mean, I think you have to understand adversity to understand resilience. And I am so thankful to have grown up where in a world where adversity was a constant, but resilience was the underlying factor that mm-hmm. informed everything we did and how we saw the world. And in your, your dad, you said is born in Baghdad. Is that right? That's right. Wow. So, so you didn't look like a lot of the people that were around you, I'm guessing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting though, where I grew up, everybody looked Slightly, you know, PG County, Maryland is a really diverse place. And I think it wasn't until I left that I understood that not every place looked like that. <laughs> so, wow. You know, what, a, what a lucky opportunity. Truthfully. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, everybody had, a, you know, 
um, a story, I would say. And I think in general, everybody does, right? I mean, you could be from a, from all parts of the country and everybody in the end has a story and has a story of their family, has a story of, of overcoming odds. And I think having grown up in a place where everybody was from somewhere, <laughs> you know, really did um, give me a strong sense of not being at all uncomfortable with difference and in fact being much more comfortable with difference than with folks who had the same background as me in fact i mis mistrusted that much more i think coming out of, of beauty county women connect all access workshop you can't say that with liz mead we'll focus on strategies to master diversity in a new decade join us on june 9th tickets are available at wlcglobal.org Let's talk about storytelling, specifically The Daughters of Kobani. This book is just so powerful. How did you come upon it? It came to me actually via one of the soldiers in my second book, Ashley Swore. She called me via WhatsApp and said, you have to come to Syria. You have to see what's happening here because there are women leading the fight against ISIS. And they're not just leading women in battle, they're also leading men. And they're not just fighting against ISIS, they're fighting for women's emancipation. These are women yeah. in Syria yeah. fighting ISIS. Correct, and not just fighting ISIS, but truly leading in battle against the Islamic State. This was, in the end, a showdown between men who bought and sold women as a central part of who they were, and women who were motivated and had at the very core of who they were the, by the notion of women's emancipation, women's rights, and women's equality. And what were the odds that those two fighting forces would come into contact on the battlefield every single day and that the United States would be the ones backing the women who were fighting the men of the Islamic State? So interesting. So how did it start? Like yeah. who started that? What, what woman said, let's do this, yeah. even though we can't go outside, let's do this. Well, well yeah. and, and I think it's different in Northeastern Syria. Women had been, you know, very uh, much focused on their rights for, for years. Uh, and I think this came from, this didn't happen overnight. This was part of a political movement that really stemmed from, the teachings of Abdullah Ocalan, who is the leader of this group of Syrian Kurds, who is sitting in jail in Turkey, in NATO ally Turkey, considers him an existential threat, which the book really talks about. But his notion, as he is in prison, coming to think about his whole quest for Kurdish rights, right? This is the world's largest ethnic minority with no homeland. And his whole quest was the Kurds could not be free until women were free. And that you couldn't talk about Kurdish liberation without talking about women's liberation. And he's writing about the housewifeization of women's work, about the history of, of men and women being a history of women's enslavement. And he really goes far, um, influenced by women in the movement, influenced by women in his family. And that ideology becomes the glue that both makes it so challenging for the U.S. to work with them because NATO ally Turkey has a very different view of them, but also is what motivates them to, to say when the vacuum of the Syrian civil war happens in 2011 and the chaos of that occurs, that this was the moment for 
Kurds to rule themselves. And women said, and we will be a central part of it. So that women would be central. If you look at the, and the book really goes into this, if you look at the first documents that are talking about this sliver of no man's land, truly recognized by nobody outside uh, its corner of Northeastern Syria, women are mentioned more than a dozen times. Women's equality is mentioned, women's rights to political representation, women's rights to economic opportunity and economic rights, uh, yes to girls' education, no to child marriage. All of these things are part of the first documents they put out as to what their self-rule in their pocket of Northeastern Syria will look like. And so at the beginning, it's just about protecting their neighborhoods. Like, you know, women across Iowa, right? And you, if something happens, a chaos is happening, you get with your community and you figure out how to deal with what's next. That was how this started. And how did it end? Uh, it ended with the United States and the Global Coalition to Stop ISIS, the counter-ISIS, seeing this as the best chance the world had to stop the Islamic State and the women and, of course, the men alongside whom they fought in this people's protection units. The women's protection units were one part of that um, become America's partner and continue to this day to be America's partner in the fight against the Islamic State. I, I've heard you say that writing this book wasn't a choice for you. You <laughs> had to do it. You had to do it. I know many in your audience will recognize that notion that uh, <laughs> when work, when you do work you love and are committed to, and I think storytelling is a piece of this, you don't really have a choice, right? Stories find you, they take over your world, they take over uh, the imagination, and it mostly they fill you with the responsibility to share them with other people. And if you feel like you might have a chance at making a difference, then you have to do it. Kamala in my first book was about a teenage girl whose business supported her family under the Taliban. And her father used to say, you do as much as you can for as many as you can for as long as you can. Uh, I fall short of that regularly, but I think they're good words to lean toward. Mm -hmm. One thing, I, an observation that I've heard you say too, that you, know, you feel that these women were more comfortable with power unless apologetic about leading than maybe women you see elsewhere, including here in the U.S.? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it looks very different. Look, in the U.S., I think we still have this discussion about how do men feel, how do women feel, how do people identify, you know, feel as, uh, about the notion of women taking power. And what you see among women there, which I think many people you know, I was giving a speech to high school students identifying as women and girls the other day. And we were talking about this. It looks different when you don't ask for permission to take space. It looks different. You don't ask for permission to lead. Right? I mean, for these women, they had led in battle. They had fought against the Islamic State for a half decade. They had brought more young women into the fold with them. They had changed their society in the process. And they weren't about to give that up. So there's a moment in the book where I asked about the Yusuf, who's a political leader. I said, you know, I looked at the founding document, women are mentioned, you know, 13 times or whatever. Didn't somebody tell you this goes too far too fast? She said, well, of course they did. But if we didn't take our rights now, when were we going to take them? And that was the, a thought that really stayed with me was however you felt about it, it looks different. And it looks different the way women lead and when they lead, right? 
I do think so. I mean, I am not of the belief that all women are more humane, but I do believe that when women lead, they think about women and girls and what the plight is. And this was something that came up over and over again um, in the Daughters of Kobani. And you'll see in the book, right, that um, it wasn't that they were less lethal. In fact, you know, there's snipers who were the best at what they did. I was talking to some folks about this the other day, were women. It was that women were thinking about what was happening and they were motivated by what was happening to women and girls. So the Yazidi community suffered crimes against humanity. I mean, the likes of which we, you know, God willing, will never see again. But, you know, ISIS came to this community, separated women from men, separated girls from women and sold women and girls. This was a part of what they did. and It was codified. And it all happened in real time with the whole world watching. And there's no question that that influenced what motivated. And there's a scene in going into the battle for Rocco or Rosha, one of the commanders, right? Who's his uh, grandfather, whose uncle, when she played soccer in her grandmother's village, you know, really dressed up as a ghost to stop her and her cousin from playing soccer because it was shameful that girls would play sports uh, in this very traditional village, right? So Rosha is leading this battle against ISIS. And she meets this woman who, right before the battle starts, who um, has been held captive and enslaved by the Islamic State, and who's so strong, she has the you know wherewithal to get on to share her story and to tell her what was happening. And you know, she comes away with the story. Another young woman asks in the book, "It's like, why should anyone have the right to do this?" And that was a motivator in a deeply personal way as they push forward for uh, their rights. Overwhelmed by data, the Master of Business Analytics program at Iowa State University can help with that. Their program will teach you how to organize your data and use it to drive decisions, taking you from down and out to the data-driven top dog. The program is 100% online, it's customizable, plus there's no entrance exam. If you're ready to make your data work for you, visit ivybusiness.iastate.edu for more information. You also talk a lot about the relationships among the women. Yeah. Even even women mentoring others. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I mean, I think the, the female superpower is just getting on with it wherever you are in the world. And that is who these young women were, right? I mean, Roja thought she was going to be a pharmacist. You know, Nuru's thought maybe she would be a lawyer or a doctor. You know, these were not people who thought that this was going to be their fate. And yet when the moment arose, they found a courage within themselves to not just be there for themselves, but really for their friends. And there's a moment in the book where Azima, who's, you know, kind of a, sort of a hilarious person to, to spend time around, very wry, kind of swashbuckling, chain smoking, former volleyball, high school volleyball star, right? Um, who's kind of the, the, the young woman in your family that everybody has who won't take no for an answer. You <laughs> know, She's really that, that person. And her dear friend, Rosda, is introverted, you know, kind of her polar opposite. And uh, they're always looking out for each other. They're always trying to find each other. You know, is every, are you okay? Am I okay? And, and they would go weeks on it without speaking, but they would always be checking on each other. And, you know, Azima talked to me about watching what Isis did to her friends and just thinking like, this cannot stand. This is something I have to answer. And feeling guilt for watching, you know, her friends' lives lost, but also feeling a deep sense of wanting justice 
afterward. Uh, and yet these are also young women like, you know, all the young women in our neighborhood, right? Like, you know, their sisters are calling, their mothers are calling in battle, you know, their friends, their daughters, their sisters. And, and I really wanted the humanity amid the inhumanity of war to show. They're calling their sisters in battle? So I mean, they're busy people, right? I mean, who knows? I mean, yeah, hold the phone, hold the phone. I'm fighting ISIS right now. Right. Well, so this is it truly what happened. And I used to make them tell these stories sometimes just because it would give us all such a laugh because they would go back in time as they shared it with me. You know, Rose just has a story. You know, I come from a traditional uh, society on my father's side too. And everybody knows if, if your parent calls you, especially your mother, there's no chance, right? I don't care where you're on the road. You don't, you pick up. So Rose is here in the middle of the battle for Kobani and her mother was calling to make sure she's okay. And she has this like thought, you know, as, Literally, they're in a firefight. Um, you know, do I answer? Do I not answer? And she's like, oh, my God, if I don't answer, my mother's going to think I'm dead. Then she's going to start calling everybody. Then I'm going to have to deal with even more phone calls, right? So she answers and just puts up the phone. Her mother hears bullets going by. Her mother starts wailing, and you know, blaming Azima for getting roached into this in the first place. And her mother's crying. And she's like, oh, my gosh. You know, in the middle of battle, like, we're trying to fight ice, but you also have to deal with your mom, right? So, so to show that that these were all happening at the same time mothers are universal aren't they 100%. and you, you do pick up like period wherever you are in the world it's always it's always something you navigate you still have a couple more days to shop the wlc store for all proceeds from may to benefit the girls with goals fund shop away at wlcstore.myshopify.com you light up when you talk about this. I'm just wondering if this changed you, this experience, and how. Uh, every story that you have the privilege of writing book length, I think, changes you because you live in that world. And you inhabit that world. And you work to take the best of the, you know, war is, is the worst of humanity and the best of humanity colliding against each other. And you work so hard to share the huge inspiration you feel at hearing firsthand the courage of people who battled for humanity and for what we values that we all hold dear for universal human rights. You work to share their spirit, their humanity, their courage, their complexity uh, with readers who will never go to their countries to meet them, or if they're here in the US, as in the case of Ashley's War, who will not necessarily have the opportunity to meet them. And you wanna take them not into anybody's politics because the books are never about politics. They are about truly taking a flashlight and bringing you into the world of people who are rewriting the rules governing their lives and introducing you to them and let you decide for yourself how you feel. Have you kept up with these women? I have. Yeah, and I do. And, and it's been amazing. right? I mean, I'll tell you what. There's so much that brings me joy about being able to share stories like this. And the biggest thing is reaching readers across the country who might not have thought that a book set in Syria was for them. Oh, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't really for me. Or maybe do I need to know anything before I read this? It's like, no. National security is everybody's work. And women's stories are universal 
and they are important. A woman's lives have heft. And all of these things are expressed by bearing witness to what people undertook in the name of humanity, in the name of all of us, right? These young women went and fought the Islamic State every single day so that other people didn't have to. And they did it for not just the region, not just for Europe, not just for the United States, but truly for the world. So that the Islamic State at the end of 2019 could not say it had a territory from which to launch attacks. And these women and the men they fought alongside, right? This fighting force that was America's partner lost 10,000 people in the fight to stop the Islamic State. And I wanted to show the humor and the heart and the humanity uh, of those people who were not superheroes, but were people who said, okay, I'll take this on because if I don't, who will? In the prologue of this book, you share something uh, really honest, something that your dad said. <laughs> when it, I, I just find it so interesting knowing you know, the subject matter of this book, if you want to share it with our listeners. Yes, yeah, so my father was an amazing human being. He was a complicated person and a wonderful person but definitely complicated as a result of really losing his country and losing everything as, as a child. I think, you know, loss was a central part of his entire life, right? He was born in Baghdad, lost his country as a kid. Uh, he was the wrong faith and he was, had to flee. And we, we were one day, I think I was like his divine justice was having me as a daughter because we, you know, he had come up in a world in which didn't look very different from what a lot of the young women in the story were, you know, and what men said went. And so when my father, I, we had visited with his family and I said, you know, I just don't understand it. Why do the women cook all the time? Why did they have to eat? So I just, I don't get any of this stuff. This is ridiculous. They're cooking so much. I, and I hate cooking. I hate bandage. I said, this is ridiculous. Said, why aren't you cooking? You know, why aren't you doing this stuff? Why aren't you cleaning up? And he, I was probably nine at the time, eight or nine, maybe. And he looked at me and he said, do you really think men and women are equal? And I said, yeah, I do. And it was to him, this, he meant no disrespect. I have to say this. It was simply mind boggling for him. It didn't fit with the world he grew up with. But I will say by the end, when he, he's passed now, but not, not much before uh, he passed, we were in South Florida uh, in uh, a boardwalk. And this lady came up to him and was like, oh, you have a Harvard Business School dad t-shirt. That's so cute. You know, where is your son? What year is your son? And my father said, couldn't it be my daughter? It's my daughter. And I wow. Said, no, it took you 30 years. I'm so proud of you. You really, <laughs> you really made the journey. And and really, I mean, I think in the end, you know, I would, I showed him uh, all the examples along the way, whether he wanted to see them or not, about things I thought were not just. And I mean, he did not always agree. But I think in the end, he really did come around to being both deeply proud and also taught me a great deal. Do you know a woman in the Quad Cities who consistently supports, develops, and honors other women leaders? Nominate her for a Quad Cities Leadership Award. Nominations are open at WLCglobal.org. What do you think is your superpower, Gail? And how do you own that? I would say two things. One is never giving up. Because, uh, and, and I talk about this, you know, so many times people come on podcasts or go on TV. I'm just like, oh my gosh, they must have had unparalleled success from start to finish. And the truth is you cannot succeed unless you fail. And we don't talk about failure enough. We do not talk about all the setbacks we have, all the doubters. And I see doubters as motivators. And that comes from 
coming up in a world where everything was hard for the women who raised us. So I never looked for it to be easy. And I think that, you know, that's always um, the thing I find with people who've had so much privilege is that they, they think that just everything magically happens. And I think when you know it, it doesn't, you sort of don't take the setbacks so personally. You just keep pushing. It doesn't mean you don't get frustrated. It doesn't mean you don't get irritated. For sure. I'm definitely not uh, uh, above any of that. But it does mean that you just think, well, it's part of the process, right? Um, as my cousin always says, if it were easy, everybody would be doing it. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is to see things that other people don't and to see humanity in a way that's universal because I grew up with so many people who were different. I've been around, had the privilege of being around people who are so different and, and to not take hard narratives as fact, to actually see the humanity and see that what binds us together is so much more powerful than what divides us. And I think in this moment, in this country, that is particularly important. Gail, thank you. Thank you so much for your insight, your storytelling ability and bringing us these powerful stories. And also thanks for bringing your stories to Iowa. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for taking the story so personally. It is what makes the difference. Thank you, Gail. Be well, my friend. You too. Thank you so much. You'll be able to hear from Gail at the 2021 Central Iowa Conference on October 27th and 28th. You can register by going to our website, wlcglobal.org. Follow Women Lead Change on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. We appreciate it so much. More information and tickets can be found at wlcglobal.org.